Act Two of She Stoops to Conquer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. She Stoops to Conquer by Oliver Goldsmith. Act the Second. Scene An Old Fashioned House. Enter Hardcastle, followed by three or four awkward servants. Well, I hope you are perfect in the table exercise I have been teaching you these three days. You all know your posts and your places, and can show that you have been used to good company, without ever stirring from home. Aye, aye. aye. When company comes, you are not to pop out and stare, and then run in again, like frightened rabbits in a warren. No, no. 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 You, Diggory, whom I have taken from the barn, are to make a show at the side-table, and you, Roger, whom I have advanced from the plough, are to place yourself behind my chair. But you're not to stand so with your hands in your pockets. Take your hands from your pockets, Roger, and from your head, you blockhead, you. See how Diggory carries his hands? They're a little stiff, indeed, but that's no great matter. Ah, mind how I hold them. I learned to hold my hands this way when I was upon drill for the militia. And so being upon drill— You must not be so talkative, Diggory. You must be all attention to your guests. You must hear us talk, and not think of talking. You must see us drink, and not think of drinking. You must see us eat, and not think of eating. By the laws, your worship, that's perfectly impossible. Whenever Diggory sees eating going forward, Ickard is always wishing for a mouthful himself. Blockhead! It's not a bellyful in the kitchen as good as a bellyful in the parlour. Stay your stomach with that reflection. Ickard, I thank your worship. I'll make a shift to stay my stomach with a slice of cold beef in the pantry. Diggory, you are too talkative. Then, if I happen to say a good thing, or tell a good story at table, you must not burst out a-laughing, as if you made part of the company. Then, Eckhart, your worship, must not tell the story of old Grose in the gun-room. I can't help laughing at that. <laughs> For the soul of me. We have laughed at that these twenty years. <laughs> <laughs> the story is a good one. Well, honest Diggory, you may laugh at that, but still remember to be attentive. Suppose one of the company should call for a glass of wine. How will you behave? A glass of wine, sir, if you please. To Diggory. Eh, why don't you move? Ecod, your worship, I never have courage till I see the eatables and drinkables brought upon the table, and then I'm as bold as a lion. What? Will nobody move? I'm not to leave this place. I'm sure it's no place of mine. No mine for certain. Burns, and I'm sure it cannot be mine. You numbskulls! And so, while, like your betters, you are quarrelling for places, the guests must be starved. Oh, you dunces! I find I must begin all over again. But don't I hear a coach drive into the yard? To your posts, you blockheads! I'll go in the meantime and give my old friend's son a hearty reception at the gate. Exit Hardcastle. 
by the elevens my place is going quite out of my head i know that my place is to be everywhere where the devil is mine my place is to be nowhere at all so i go about my business exeunt servants running about as if frightened different ways enter servant with candles showing in marlowe and hastings welcome gentlemen very welcome this way after the disappointments of the day welcome once more charles to the comforts of a clean room and a good fire upon my word very well-looking house antique but credible the usual fate of a large mansion having ruined the master by good housekeeping it at last comes to levy contributions as an inn as you say we passengers are to be taxed to pay for all these fineries i have often seen a good sideboard or a marble chimney-piece though not actually put in the bill inflame a reckoning confoundedly travellers george must pay in all places the only difference is that in good inns you pay dearly for luxuries in bad inns you are fleeced and starved you have lived very much among them in truth I have been often surprised that you, who have seen so much of the world, with your natural good sense and your many opportunities, could never yet acquire a requisite share of assurance. The Englishman's malady. But tell me, George, where could I have learned that assurance you talk of? My life has been chiefly spent in a college or an inn, in seclusion from that lovely part of the creation that chiefly teach men confidence. I don't know that I was ever familiarly acquainted with a single modest woman except my mother but among females of another class you know ay among them you are impudent enough of all conscience they are of us you know but in the company of women of reputation i never saw such an idiot such a trembler you look for all the world as if you wanted an opportunity of stealing out of the room why man that's because i do want to steal out of the room faith i have often formed a resolution to break the ice and rattle away at any rate but i don't know how a single glance from a pair of fine eyes has totally overset my resolution an impudent fellow may counterfeit modesty but i will be hanged if a modest man can ever counterfeit impudence if you could but say half of the fine things to them that i have heard you lavish upon a barmaid of an inn or even a college bedmaker why george i can't say fine things to them they freeze they petrify me they may talk of a comet or a burning mountain or some such bagatelle but to me a modest woman dressed out in all her finery is the most tremendous object of the whole creation <laughs> at this rate man how can you ever expect to marry never unless as among kings and princes my bride were to be quoted by proxy if indeed like an eastern bridegroom one were to be introduced to a wife he never saw before it might be endured but to go through all the terrors of formal courtship together with the episode of aunts grandmothers and cousins and at last to blurt out the broad staring question of madam will you marry me no no that's a strain much above me i assure you i pity you but how do you intend behaving to the lady you are come down to visit at the request of your father as i behave to all other ladies bow very low answer yes or no to all her demands but for the rest i don't think i shall venture to look in her face till i see my father's again i am surprised that one who is so warm a friend can be so cool a lover to be explicit my dear hastings my chief inducement down was to be instrumental in forwarding your happiness not my own miss neville loves you the family don't know you 
as my friend you are sure of a reception and let honour do the rest my dear marlowe i'll suppress the emotion were i a wretch meanly seeking to carry off a fortune you should be the last man in the world i would apply to for assistance but miss neville's person is all i ask and that is mine both from her deceased father's consent and her own inclination happy man you have talents and art to captivate any woman i am doomed to adore the sex and yet to converse with the only part of it i despise this stammer in my address and this awkward prepossessing visage of mine can never permit me to soar above the reach of milliner's prentice or one of the duchesses of drury lane pasha this fellow here to interrupt us enter hardcastle gentlemen once more you are heartily welcome which is mr marlowe sir you are heartily welcome it's not my way you see to receive my friends with my back to the fire i like to give them a hearty reception in the old style at my gate i like to see their horses and trunks taken care of aside he has got our names from the servants already to him we approve your caution and hospitality sir to hastings i have been thinking george of changing our travelling dresses in the morning i am grown confoundedly ashamed of mine i beg mr marlowe you'll use no ceremony in this house i fancy charles you're right the first blow is half the battle i intend opening the campaign with the white and gold mr marlowe mr hastings gentlemen pray be under no constraint in this house this is liberty hall gentlemen you may do just as you please here yet george if we open the campaign too fiercely at first we may want ammunition before it's over i think to reserve the embroidery to secure a retreat your talking of a retreat mr marlowe puts me in mind of the duke of marlborough when we went to besiege denain he first summoned the garrison don't you think the montreux waistcoat will do with a plain brown he first summoned the garrison which might consist of about five thousand men i think not brown and yellow mix but very poorly i say gentlemen as i was telling you he summoned the garrison which might consist of about five thousand men the girls like finery which might consist of about five thousand men well appointed with stores ammunition and other implements of war now says the duke of marlborough to george brooks that stood next to him you must have heard of george brooks i'll pawn my dukedom says he but i take that garrison without spilling a drop of blood so what my good friend if you have a glass of punch in the meantime it would help us carry on the siege with vigour punch sir aside this is the most unaccountable kind of modesty i have ever met with yes sir punch a glass of warm punch after our journey will be comfortable this is liberty hall you know here's a cop sir aside so this fellow in his liberty hall will only let us have just what he pleases taking the cup i hope you'll find it to your mind i have prepared it with my own hands and i believe you'll own the ingredients are tolerable will you be so good as to pledge me sir here mr marlowe here is to our better acquaintance drinks aside a very impudent fellow this but he has a character and i will humour him a little sir my service to you 
Drinks. Aside. I see this fellow wants to give us his company, and forgets that he's an innkeeper, before he has learned to be a gentleman. From the excellence of your cup, my old friend, I suppose you have a good deal of business in this part of the country. Warm work, now and then, at elections, I suppose. No, sir, I have long given that work over. Since our betters have hit upon the expedient of electing each other, there is no business for us that sell ale. So then, you have no turn for politics, I find. Not in the least. There was a time, indeed, I fretted myself about the mistakes of government like other people. But finding myself every day grow more angry, and the government growing no better, I left it to mend itself. Since that, I no more trouble my head about Hyder Alley or Alley Khan than about Alley Croker. Sir, my service to you. So that with eating above stairs, and drinking below, with receiving your friends within, and amusing them without, you lead a good, pleasant, bustling life of it. I do stir about a great deal, that's certain. Half the differences of the parish are adjusted in this very parlour. After drinking. And you have an argument in your cup, old gentleman, better than any in Westminster Hall? Aye, young gentleman, that and a little philosophy. Aside. Well, this is the first time I ever heard an innkeeper's philosophy. So then, like an experienced general, you attack them on every quarter. If you find their reason manageable, you attack it with your philosophy. If you find they have no reason, you attack them with this. Here's your health, my philosopher. Drinks. Good, very good. Thank you. Ha <laughs> ha! Your generalship puts me in the mind of Prince Eugene when he fought the Turks at the Battle of Belgrade. You shall hear. Instead of the Battle of Belgrade, I believe it's almost time to talk about supper. What's your philosophy got in the house for supper? For supper, sir? Aside. Was ever such a request to a man in his own house? Yes, sir. Supper, sir. I begin to feel an appetite. I shall make a devilish work tonight in the larder. I promise you. Aside. Such a brazen dog sure never my eyes beheld. To him. Why, really, sir, as for supper, I can't well tell. My Dorothy and the cookmaid settle these things between them. I leave these kinds of things entirely to them. You do, do you? Uh, entirely. By the by, I believe they are in actual consultation about what's for supper this moment in the kitchen. Then I beg they will admit me as one of their privy council. It's a way I've got. When I travel, I always choose to regulate my own supper. Let the cook be called. No offence, I hope, sir. Oh, no, sir, not in the least. Yet, I don't know how. Our Bridget, the cookmaid, is not very communicative upon these occasions. Should we send for her, she might scold us all out of the house. Let's see your list of the larder, then. I ask it as a favor. I always match my appetite to my bill of fare. To Hardcastle, who looks at them with surprise. Sir, he is very right. And it's my way, too. Sir, you have a right to command here. Here, Roger, bring us the bill of fare for tonight's supper. I believe it's drawn out. Your manner, Mr. Hastings, puts me in mind of my uncle, Colonel Wallop. 
It was a saying of his that no man was sure of his supper till he had eaten it. Aside. All upon the high rope. His uncle a colonel. We shall soon hear of his mother being a justice of the peace. But let's hear the bill of fare. Perusing. What's here? For the first course, for the second course, for the desert. The devil! Sir, do you think we have brought down a whole joiner's company, or the corporation of Bedford, to eat up such a supper? Two or three little things, clean and comfortable, will do. But let's hear it. Reading. For the first course, at the top, a pig and prune sauce. Damn your pig, I say. And damn your prune sauce, say I. And yet, gentlemen, to men that are hungry, pig with prune sauce is very good eating. At the bottom, a cough's tongue and brains. Let your brains be knocked out, my good sir. I don't like them. Or you may clap them on a plate by themselves. I do. Aside. Their impudence confounds me. To them. Gentlemen, you are my guests. Make what alterations you please. Is there anything else you wish to retrench or alter, gentlemen? Item. A pork pie. A boiled rabbit and sausages. A florentine. A shaking pudding. And a dish of tiff, taff, taffety cream. Confound your made dishes. I shall be as much at a loss in this house as at a green and yellow dinner at the French ambassador's table. I'm for plain eating. I'm sorry, gentlemen, that I have nothing you like. But if there be anything you have a particular fancy to— Why, really, sir, your bill of fare is so exquisite that any one part of it is full as good as another. Send us what you please. So much for supper. And now to see that your beds are aired and properly taken care of. I entreat you'll leave that to me. You shall not stir a step. Leave that to you? I protest, sir. You must excuse me. I always look at these things myself. I must insist, sir. You'll make yourself easy on that head. You see, I am resolved on it. Aside. A very troublesome fellow, this, as I ever met with. Well, sir, I am resolved at least to attend you. Aside. This may be modern modesty, but I never saw anything look so like old-fashioned impudence. Exeunt Marlowe and Hardcastle. Alone. So I find this fellow's civilities begin to grow troublesome. But who can be angry at those assiduities which are meant to please him? Ha! What do I see? Miss Neville, by all that's happy! Enter Miss Neville. My dear Hastings, to what unexpected good fortune, to what accident, am I to ascribe this happy meeting? Rather let me ask the same question, as I could never have hoped to meet my dearest Constance at an inn. An inn? Sure you mistake. My aunt, my guardian, lives here. What could induce you to think this house an inn? My friend, Mr. Marlowe, with whom I came down, and I, have been sent here as to an inn, I assure you. A young fellow, whom we accidentally met at a house hard by, directed us hither. Certainly it would be one of my hopeful cousin's tricks of whom you've heard me talk about so often. <laughs> he whom your aunt intends for you? He of whom I have such just apprehensions? You have nothing to fear from him, I assure you. You'd adore him, if you knew how heartily he despises me. My aunt knows it too, and has undertaken to court me for him. 
and actually begins to think she has made a conquest. Thou dear dissembler, you must know, my Constance, I have just seized this happy opportunity of my friend's visit here to get admittance into the family. The horses that carried us down here are now fatigued with their journey, but they'll soon be refreshed, and then, if my dearest girl will trust in her faithful hastings, we shall soon be landed in France, where even among slaves the laws of marriage are respected. I have often told you that, though ready to obey you, I yet should leave my little fortune behind with reluctance. The greatest part of it was left to me by my uncle, the Indian director, and chiefly consists in jewels. I have been for some time persuading my aunt to let me wear them. I fancy I'm near succeeding. The instant they put them in my possession, you shall find me ready to make them and myself yours. Perish the baubles! Your person is all I desire. In the meantime, my friend Marlow must not be let into his mistake. I know the strange reserve of his temper is such that if abruptly informed of it, he would instantly quit the house before our plan was ripe for execution. But how shall we keep him in the deception? Miss Hardcastle is just returning from walk. What if we still continue to deceive them? This way, this way. They confer. Enter Marlowe. The assiduities of these good people tease me beyond bearing. My host seems to think it ill-manners to leave me alone, and so he claps not only himself, but his old-fashioned wife on my back. They talk of coming to sup with us too, and then, I suppose we are to run the gantlet through all the rest of the family. What have we got here? My dear Charles, let me congratulate you. The most fortunate accident. Who do you think is just alighted? Cannot guess. Our mistresses, boy, Miss Hardcastle and Miss Neville. Give me leave to introduce Miss Constance Neville to your acquaintance. Happening to dine in the neighborhood, they called on their return to take fresh horses here. Miss Hardcastle has just stepped into the next room, and will be back in an instant. Wasn't it lucky, eh? Aside. I have been mortified enough of all conscience, and here comes something to complete my embarrassment. Well, but wasn't it the most fortunate thing in the world? Oh, yes, very fortunate, a most joyful encounter. But our dresses, George, you know, are in disorder. What if we should postpone the happiness till tomorrow? tomorrow at our own house it will be every bit as convenient and rather more respectful tomorrow let it be offering to go by no means sir your ceremony will displease her the disorder of your dress will show the ardour of your impatience besides she knows you're in the house and will permit you to see her oh the devil how shall i support it hem hem hastings you must not go you are to assist me you know I shall be confoundedly ridiculous. Yet, hang it, I'll take courage. Hem. Pshaw, man, it's but the first plunge, and it's all over. She's but a woman, you know. And, of all women, she that I dread most to encounter. Enter Miss Hardcastle, as returned from walking, a bonnet, etc. Introducing them. Miss Hardcastle, Mr. Marlowe, I'm proud of bringing two persons of such merit together, that only want to know, to esteem each other aside now for meeting my modest gentleman with a demure face and quite in his own manner after a pause in which he appears very uneasy and disconcerted i'm glad of your safe arrival sir i'm told you had some accidents by the way only a few madam yes we had some yes madam a good many accidents but should be sorry madam or rather glad of any accidents they are so agreeably concluded him 
to him. You never spoke better in your whole life. Keep it up, and I'll ensure you the victory. I'm afraid you flatter, sir. You that have seen so much of the finest company can find little entertainment in an obscure corner of the country. Gathering courage. I have lived, indeed, in the world, madam, but I have kept very little company. I have been but an observer upon life, madam, while others were enjoying it. But that, I am told, is the way to enjoy it at last. To him. Cicero never spoke better. Once more, and you are confirmed in assurance forever. To him. Him. Stand by me, then, and when I am down, throw in a word or two, to set me up again. An observer, like you, upon life, were, I fear, disagreeably employed, since you must have had much more to censure than to approve. Pardon me, madam. I was always willing to be amused. The folly of most people is rather an object of mirth than uneasiness. To him. Bravo, bravo. Never spoke so well in your whole life. Well, Miss Hardcastle, I see that you and Mr. Marlowe are going to be very good company. I believe our being here will but embarrass the interview. Not in the least, Mr. Hastings. We like your company of all things. To him. Zounds, George. Sure you won't go? How can you leave us? Our presence will but spoil conversation, so we'll retire to the next room. To him. You don't consider, man, that we are to manage a little tete-a-tete -tete of our own. Exeunt. After a pause. But you have not been wholly an observer, I presume, sir. The ladies, I should hope, have employed some part of your addresses. Relapsing into timidity. Pardon me, madam. I, I, I... As it have studied, only to deserve them. And that, some say, is the very worst way to obtain them. Perhaps so, madam. But I love to converse only with more grave, unsensible part of the sex. But I am afraid I grow tiresome. Not at all, sir. There is nothing I like so much as grave conversation myself. I could hear it for ever. Indeed, I have often been surprised how a man of sentiment could ever admire those light, airy pleasures where nothing reaches the heart. It's a disease of the mind, madam. In the variety of taste there must be some who, wanting a relish for, um, uh, um. I understand you, sir. There must be some who, wanting a relish for refined pleasures, pretend to despise what they are incapable of tasting. My meaning, madam, but infinitely better expressed, and I can't help observing a... Uh... Aside. Who could ever suppose this fellow impudent upon some occasions? To him. You were going to observe, sir. I was observing, madam. I protest, madam. I forget what I was going to observe. Aside. I vow, and so do I. To him. You were observing, sir, that in this age of hypocrisy... Something about hypocrisy, sir. Yes, madam. In this age of hypocrisy, there are few upon strict inquiry do not... Uh, uh, uh... I understand you perfectly, sir. Aside. Egad. And that's more than I do myself. You mean that in this hypocritical age there are few that do not condemn in public what they practice in private, and think they pay every debt to virtue when they praise it? True, madam. Those who have most virtue in their mouths 
have least of it in their bosoms but i am sure i tire you madam not in the least sir there's something so agreeable and spirited in your manner such life and force pray sir go on yes madam i was saying that there are some occasions when a total want of courage madam destroys all the and puts us upon a a a i agree with you entirely a want of courage upon some occasions assumes the appearance of ignorance and betrays us when we most want to excel i beg you'll proceed yes madam morally speaking madam but i see miss neville expecting us in the next room i would not intrude for the world i protest sir i never was more agreeably entertained in all my life pray go on yes madam i was but she beckons us to join her madam shall i do myself the honour to attend you well then i'll follow aside this pretty much smooth dialogue has done for me exit alone <laughs> was there ever such a sober sentimental interview i'm certain he scarce looked in my face the whole time yet the fellow but for his unaccountable bashfulness is pretty well too he has good sense but then so buried in his fears that it fatigues one more than ignorance if i could teach him a little confidence it would be doing somebody that i know of a piece of service but who is that somebody that faith is a question i can scarce answer exit enter tony and miss neville followed by mrs hardcastle and hastings what do you follow me for cousin con i wonder you're not ashamed to be so very engaging i hope cousin one may speak to one's own relations and not be to blame ay but i know what sort of a relation you want to make me though but it won't do i tell you cousin con it won't do so i beg you'll keep your distance i want no nearer relationship she follows coquetting him to the back scene well i vow mr hastings you are very entertaining there's nothing in the world i love to talk of so much as london and the fashions though i was never there myself never there you amaze me from your air and manner i concluded you had been bred all your life either at ranelagh st james's or tower wharf oh sir you're only pleased to say so we country persons can have no manner at all i'm in love with the town and that serves to raise me above some of our neighbouring rustics but who can have a manner that has never seen the pantheon the grotto gardens the borough and such places where the nobility chiefly resort all i can do is to enjoy london at second hand i take care to know every tete-a-tete from the scandalous magazine and have all the fashions as they come out in a letter from the two miss ricketts of crooked lane pray how do you like this head mr hastings extremely elegant and degage upon my word madame your freezer is a frenchman i suppose i protest i dressed it myself from a print in the lady's memorandum book for the last year indeed such a head in a side-box at the playhouse would draw as many gazers as my lady mayoress at a city ball i vow since inoculation began there is no such thing to be seen as a plain woman so one must dress a little particular or one may escape in the crowd 
but that can never be your case madame in any dress bowing yet what signifies my dressing when i have such a piece of antiquity by my side as mr hardcastle all i can say will never argue down a single button from his clothes i have often wanted him to throw off his great flaxen wig and where he was bald to plaster it over like my lord pateley with powder you are right madame for as among the ladies there are none ugly so among the men there are none old but what do you think his answer was why with his usual gothic vivacity he said i only wanted him to throw off his wig to convert it into a tete for my own wearing intolerable at your age you may wear what you please and it must become you pray mr hastings what do you take to be the most fashionable age about town some time ago forty was all the mode but i'm told the ladies intend to bring up fifty for the ensuing winter seriously then i shall be too young for the fashion no lady begins now to put on jewels till she's past forty for instance miss there in a polite circle would be considered as a child as a mere maker of samplers and yet mrs niece thinks herself as much a woman and is as fond of jewels as the oldest of us all your niece is she and that young gentleman a brother of yours i should presume my son sir they are contracted to each other observe their little sports they fall in and out ten times a day as if they were man and wife already to them well tony child what soft things are you saying to your cousin constance this evening i have been saying no soft things but that it's very hard to be followed about ecod i've not a place in the house now that's left to myself but the stable never mind him con my dear He's in another story behind your back. There's something generous in my cousin's manner. He falls out before faces to be forgiven in privates. That's a damned confounded crack. Ah, he's a sly one. Don't you think they are like each other about the mouth, Mr. Hastings? The blanking sop mouth to a T. They're of a size, too. Back to back, my pretties, that Mr. Hastings may see you. Come, Tony you had as good not make me i tell you measuring oh lads he has almost cracked my head oh the monster for shame tony you are a man and behave so if i'm a man let me have my fortin ecod i'll not be made a fool of no longer is this ungrateful boy all that i'm to get for the pains i have taken in your education i that have rocked you in your cradle and fed that pretty mouth with a spoon did not i work that waistcoat to make you genteel did not i prescribe for you every day and weep while the receipt was operating ecod you had reason to weep for you have been dousing me ever since i was born i have gone through every recipe in the complete housewife ten times over and you have thoughts of coursing me through quinsy next spring but ecod i tell you i'll not be made a fool of no longer wasn't it all for your good viper wasn't it all for your good i wish you'd let me and my good alone then snubbing this way when i'm in spirits if i'm to have any good let it come of itself not to keep dinging it dinging it into one so that's false i never see you when you're in spirits 
no tony you then go to the alehouse or kennel i'm never to be delighted with your agreeable wild notes unfeeling monster ecod mamma your own notes are the wildest of the two was ever the like but i see he wants to break my heart i see he does dear madam permit me to lecture the young gentleman a little i'm certain i can persuade him to do his duty well i must retire come constance my love you see mr hastings the wretchedness of my situation was ever poor woman so plagued with a dear sweet pretty provoking undutiful boy Exeunt mrs hardcastle and miss neville there was a young man riding by and fain would have his will rang do diddly dee don't mind her let her cry it's the comfort of her heart i have seen her and her sister cry over a book for an hour together and they said the like the book the better the more it made them cry then you're no friend to the ladies i find my pretty young gentleman that's as i find them not to her of your mother's choosing i dare answer and yet she appears to me a pretty well-tempered girl that's because you don't know her as well as i he cod i know every inch about her and there's not a more bitter cantankerous toad in all christendom aside pretty encouragement this for a lover i have seen her since the height of that she has as many tricks as a hare in a thicket or a colt the first day's breaking to me she appears sensible and silent i before company but when she's with her playmate she's as loud as a hog in a gate but there is a meek modesty about her that charms me yes but curb her never so little she kicks up and you're flung in a ditch well but you must allow her a little beauty yes you must allow her some beauty bandbox she's all a made-up thing mon ah could you but see bet bouncer of these parts you might then talk of beauty ecod she has two eyes as black as sloes and cheeks as broad and red as a pulpit cushion she'd make two of she well what say you to a friend that would take this bitter bargain off your hands what on would you thank him that would take miss neville and leave you to happiness and your dear betsy ay but where is there such a friend for who would take her i am he if you but assist me i'll engage to whip her off to france and you shall never hear more of her assist you he caught i will to the last drop of my blood i'll clap a pair of horses to your chaise that will trundle you off in a twinkling and may he get you a part of her fortin beside in jewels that you little dream of my dear squire this looks like a lad of spirit come along then and you shall see more of my spirit before you have done with me we are the boys that fears no noise where thundering cannons roar exeunt end of act two